You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We'll go ahead and get started here. It looks like we're going to... A few people went away this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. So we will be opening our study in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. And before we begin, I'd like to open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning just for the privilege of gathering together collectively to worship you, to hear your word, to be able to commune with you and with the brethren. We pray that the teaching and preaching of your word would bring glory to you and you alone. We ask this morning, once again, that you would enable us to comprehend the words of the Apostle Paul, which you inspired to write. And we pray, Father, that we'd have understanding to be able to, by your grace, apply these truths to our lives. I just ask this to your glory and in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we left off last week in chapter 3, verse 11. So I'll pick it up there to bring it in context. I'll start with verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Now Paul, as we know, he's he's expressed how Anything that he did in the past was not worth anything. It was rubbish. All the legalistic attempts to achieve some kind of level of relationship with God was all to naught. But when he came to Damascus to get some papers in order to take, to have these new Christians imprisoned, the Lord broke him. 
And miraculously, that event was the change in Paul's life. He turned from a Christian hater and a hater of Jesus Christ to a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's written this letter to the Philippians, and this is perhaps 30 years after his conversion. So at this stage in Paul's life, he's a mature believer, and he's accomplished more than any other Christian had or will do in the lifetime that he was serving God. Paul, having expressed his great desire to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead, which we looked at last time. Now, he expresses his desire to grow an even deeper knowledge of Christ. Now, we talked about the word knowledge periodically through this book. And, of course, Jim has expounded on that as well. There's different levels of knowledge. The basic level is gnosis, to know about something. This isn't the type of knowledge that Paul was speaking of here. He was speaking of epinosis and another form in the Greek, which speaks of a personal knowledge, intimate knowledge of something or someone. His knowledge of Christ was intimate. Christ had worked in and through him to accomplish great things for the Lord. He never took credit for it, and he knew it was God in him that was doing that. And that's how he instructed the Philippians. Remember back in chapter 2, he said that it was God that worked in him, in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Paul wanted to encourage these Philippian believers in their faith. He wanted them to grow in their faith. So he continues on here with some encouraging words. Now, to some, it might have been intimidating because he expressed his deep passion to know Christ in a deeper way. He loved him, served him, suffered for him. And in this stage of Paul's ministry, he had suffered greatly. So these believers may have looked at that and go, well, I don't even know if I'm a Christian if I compare myself to the apostle. Of course, he never wanted anyone to compare themselves with anyone else, and he stresses that in 2 Corinthians. And we'll look at that a bit later in this lesson. This portion of the letter, the Philippian saints displayed great love for God and fervor for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had already expressed his joy for these believers, whom he loved dearly. <clears throat> he also exhorted the believers in their conduct. Remember chapter 1, verse 27, if you want to look back at that. Paul began by instructing him this way, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm 
in one spirit, with one mind, serving together for the faith of the gospel. So he's already addressed their conduct. He wants to continue to grow in Christ and to mature and to be able to proclaim Christ in a way that they were a testimony as well. <clears throat> After writing that, the apostle now makes a profound statement in verse 12 of chapter 3. He begins by saying this, Now that I have, not that I have already attained or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul's already expressed his deep love for Christ and his relationship with Christ. Now he's wanting to get even a deeper knowledge of Christ. And in all that he has done throughout his ministry and service, he said, not that I have attained or become perfect. Well, the word perfect translates to mature. But he is saying that he hasn't fully attained because we pursue perfection as Christians in this life. That is to grow fully in the knowledge of Christ, but we never attain it in this life. Paul was looking forward to the glorious time when he would be glorified with his Savior. And yet he wanted them to pursue the Lord as he has. <clears throat> Ezra in the Old Testament the scribe who penned possibly uh, authored Second Chronicles and also Ezra. But in the seventh chapter of Ezra, he says this, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Paul understood the Old Testament well. That's what he had. He had memorized, as a Pharisee, the first five books of the Old Testament, which is referred to as the Pentateuch. He had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament saints, and he must have also had the same heart as did Ezra. We've got to keep in mind, it's God's work from beginning throughout our entire lives as Christian, and as he said and penned in Romans chapter 8, he predestined us, he justified us, and he will glorify us. So the whole process from our predestination, election, our calling, effectual calling of Christ, all that God had planned before the foundation and carried out throughout history. Now, Paul understood well of his security in Christ, and he knew also what uh, he refers to as the walk or daily living, that we start out as babes. Now, there's a portion in 1 John chapter 2, if you wouldn't mind turning there for a moment, just to look at what John, how he describes the three levels, if you would, of Christian maturity. And he does so 
in chapter 2 of 1 John, beginning with verse 13. And John says this, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. So he's describing the different stages of Christians' belief and maturity. The little children, those are referred to as babes in the New Testament epistles. They're always referred to as babes, new babes. And likened to a physical birth, the new birth, you start out not knowing anything except who Christ is, what he has done to save you, and you placed your faith and trust in him. Know very little about anything else other than he's a second person of the triune Godhead. He is born as a man, fully man and fully God, lived a perfect sinless life on this earth, suffered and died for those who placed their faith in him and was resurrected on the third day and sits at the right hand of the Father. Those things young believers must know even to be saved. So as we look at that and the progression of believers, and everyone's at a different level. Paul understood this well. So he was addressing these believers, knowing that they were growing in Christ, they were faithful and proclaiming the gospel, and he wanted to continue in that way. <clears throat> An apostle now wants the believers to understand, even though he desires spiritual perfection, that he's not yet become perfected, nor will he be perfected until he is raised up and glorified with his Savior. Now, in many of uh, John's epistles, he uses athletic metaphors. And MacArthur points this out in his commentary on Philippians. He does so in several of his epistles. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26, he said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games and exercises self-control in all things, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, run in such a way as not without aim. That's in Second Timothy 2, 4, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. So he uses often... Uh, Sports metaphors. In Ephesians, of course, he uh, uses that of the battle or wrestling in chapter 6 against not flesh and blood, principalities and powers. So as he uses these metaphors, which is replete in the New Testament, he does so also as he bids the Ephesian elders their farewell, his farewell when he was leaving Ephesus. In chapter 20 of Acts, verse 24, he said, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, 
so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify solemnly of the gospel of grace of God. And in the book of Romans, he said this, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but God who has mercy. That's in Romans chapter 9, verse 16. And again, in Corinthians, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul, his uh, metaphors that he uses in this is quite uh, familiar to all of his epistles. Now, there's a pretty interesting statement of history and background given in the Hendricks uh, commentary on Philippians. He says this, Paul's yearning for spiritual perfection is also expressed with the metaphor of a foot race in verse 12. The ancient games in which the athletes competed were called the Isthmian games. These games in which the athletes competed were comparable to the Olympics. We can maybe picture the Greek stadiums in which they held these events. Some are even standing today, some of the remains, which had its courses and tracks for foot races. The spectators were seated in the tiers seats around the stadium, similar, quite similar to the Olympics today of their track and field events. In Athens, the ancient foot races were run on a course, which is one-eighth of a mile of the old Roman mile. Now, that equivalent in our time is approximately 607 feet. So it's a little over two football fields in length in our current measurement. The games that were held in Ephesus were even somewhat longer, the field track events. The competitors in the running events competed against one another to run from one end of the stadium to the other. Each runner was assigned to their position on the track. There were rows of stone blocks that were positioned on the field. So they would have each lane outlined for the runner, and they would have a stone in which the runner would place his foot on to push off of to get a start to the race. The race, uh, the stone blocks had grooves in them which gave them better traction. And some of those still exist today. They contained the grooves which permitted the runners to gain traction and to get a quick start. The contestants stood with their bodies slightly bent forward with one hand touching the ground, similar to the crouching position that track runners do this day. They just would lean forward and they would put a, hand out to steady themselves and push off with their feet off the block. Today, there's aluminum blocks, rubber blocks that they use in track meets, which are anchored, and they push off of that. So it's similar to what they had in the days that this epistle was written. The stone blocks contain grooves, 
But when they started the race, they had a cord across the entire track, which lined up all the runners. And the start of the race would be dropping of the cord. That was the beginning of the race. They would run down to the end of the stadium, 607 feet, turn around and run back. And of course, at that length of a stadium, it was quite a race and only one would win. Back in 1981, there was a film made which was called Chariots of Fire. Maybe some of you might remember that. It was about the runner Eric Liddell from Scotland. And in that one race where he competed that distance rate, they portrayed another man whose name was Harold Abraham. Harold Abraham wanted badly to beat Eric Liddell because he was, he was the number one runner. When the race was run, Eric Liddell won. And Harold Abram went away from the track and walked up to the stands and sat by himself sulking. This is how they depicted it in the film. And while he was sitting there by himself, his lady friend that he had met worked her way up through the bleachers and sat down next to him. And she was silent for a minute, and he said, if I cannot win, I will never run again. To which his friend said, you cannot win unless you run again. So the point being is some people in the what Paul refers to the race, as we continue through our lives, have many th- obstacles. We fail. We seem to go backwards in our maturity or our walk. And that slows people down, but it should never stop us, ever. And I'll get elaborate a little bit more on that in, in just a bit. <clears throat> and <clears throat> then follows in uh, <clears throat> verse 12 where he said, Not that I have already obtained it or have become perfect, but I press on so that I may lo- lay hold of that for which I also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. This text exposes the false doctrines of perfectionism. This is what um, MacArthur brought out in his commentary. There are still today many denominations and churches in which they are teaching perfectionists that you can become perfect as a Christian. By having a second work of grace, believers believe that they can obtain a level of sinlessness. Well, that's false teaching. It's heretical, really, from anything in the New Testament teaching or Old Testament. Some teach the eradication of sin nature. That's blatant heresy. That is, the person who has experienced the second work of grace no longer sins, but makes mistakes or errors. And I remember early on in my Christian walk, when I was down south in an Armenian church, I was taught the same thing. And I said, I can't believe that. I said, we were all baptized by one spirit. And I said, there's no second baptism. Well, they had a big conference, and they wanted to put me out, and I left anyway. But this is what's being taught in many churches today. 
And young believers can be deceived in thinking somehow they're missing something when we have everything we need for life and godliness, Peter teaches. So we must not be deceived. If anyone's being led down that way, we need to instruct them in the scriptures to correct that. Yes. Well, they, yes, not really, but they misinterpret scripture. And when you look at the section, which I think Cornell did a pretty decent exposition of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 about the misuse of the gifts, and that's where they mistake and misinterpret that text. It's probably a hermeneutical issue or perhaps a non uh enlightened issue, but it's error. It's aberrant. So the sign gifts were used before we had the scriptures so that the apostles could be authenticated that they are from God, speaking from God. But when the scriptures arrived, there was no longer need for the sign gifts. So then we have the other various administrative gifts that were given that continue on today. But that Error is perpetrated in many uh, charismatic churches, in friends' churches, Quaker churches. Many of them are still holding to that teaching and its error. So, the, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, the, Jim pointed out a very good passage in First John where he says, the, what was the quote again? The one who is born of God does not sin. But in the Greek, that is a continual sinning. That is, a, a Christian, if that's the normative for a person that considers himself a Christian, non-repentant, ongoing sin, then they're not a believer. So they can't claim that they're of God. So they've taken that in the literal without looking at the original thinking that if you sin, if you don't sin, then they must be able to attain a sinless state. And that's where they key off of for that heretical teaching. <clears throat> Paul was perhaps one of the most committed and dedicated mature Christians that ever lived. Yet he acknowledged that he had not attained spiritual perfection even after 30 years of his, after his conversion. The, this acknowledgement was actually a very good indicator of his spiritual maturity. He never tried to take credit for anything he did. When he talked about things that he did, it was to illustrate the urgent desire to proclaim the gospel. He suffered greatly, but for the sake of Christ. <clears throat> Sometimes people who think more highly of themselves than they ought try to put on an air of deep spirituality. Well, that reflects the opposite. <clears throat> try to put on spiritual, deep spiritual attitude, yet mature Christians are most aware, I'm quoting from MacArthur here, of their sinful and sinfulness and seek humility by the Lord's grace and forgiveness in order to continue to pursue holiness and Christ-likeness and seek perfection yet 
knowing that it cannot be attained until the believer is glorified, end quote. As the Apostle John instructs us in 1 John 8 and 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sins, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Some may wonder why they should even try to pursue spiritual growth because believers are promised this, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for us in heaven. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. So this is an issue that some think that, well, why should I even try to get more perfected or to know Christ in a deeper way. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven, and I know that I'm eternally secure. If you have that attitude, that shows a lack of love for your Savior because you should persevere to continue on, to press on, to serve God and pursue holiness. And that is the goal of a Christian. The Apostle Paul was truly a believer in the doctrine of election, as he taught in Ephesians 1.4, just as God has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy, blameless, and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Though election is God's sovereign choosing an effectual calling of those who are his elect, it's not apart from human responsibility. We still act in faith, which is also God's gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So Paul, he understood this, and yet he wanted to urge these believers on to maturity. The uh, readers of Paul's time were quite familiar with the symbolism of athletic events that were used in, <clears throat> by Paul. In verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul states this encouraging yet instructive verse, not that I have really obtained or already have become perfect, but I press on. And Calvin said this, there are only two things that are necessary to be known for salvation. So two things we must know for salvation. One is that I'm a great sinner, unworthy of God, unfit for heaven, unable to rectify myself with God. The second is this, that Christ is a great Savior. He is the one who searches us out, and he is the one who humbles us, and he is the one who saves us. It is in this that he began the Christian walk. At first, it is the baby steps, as new babies in Scripture are referred to as babes. Paul, in the first chapter of this letter, in verse 6, said, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. End quote. 
So Calvin was expounding on this in his commentary on Philippians, and he said that, put it clearly, how we're saved and what God does in us from beginning to end. He's the author and finisher of our faith. In the second chapter, in verses 12 and 13, as I've already mentioned, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All this instruction that Paul has given here to bring focus on Jesus Christ, in that state, in that place where these Philippians lived, it was a Roman, uh, it was under the Roman Empire. So many of the people there were former Roman soldiers, and many of them were vile. Some of them were getting saved, and their lives were being turned upside down. So these Philippians had a great opportunity, a complete mission field that they were surrounded by. And Paul wanted them to grow and live out their faith in such a way that they would know that they were separate, that they were people who served and loved Jesus Christ. By the time Paul writes this epistle, as an apostle, he was quite mature. And yet he's stating the desire of his heart that I may know him in the fellowship of his suffering and be conformed to his death. That may be our goal ultimately, but we need to pursue it as any Christian should. So how would we grow in our faith in Christ? Anybody? What are the means that we grow? Yes. Okay. Reading scripture daily, feeding on God's word. Jim brought that out last night. He reads through the entire Bible every year. And we all should be meditating, reading, studying God's word. And as the psalmist David said in Psalm 119, he meditates on the word all day long. We should be meditating on God's word and memorizing God's word and in God's word. And what's that do? What did Paul say in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And how is our mind renewed? Through God's word. So these are not just knowing about God, but studying his word and practicing. We could know everything and memorize great links of scripture and still not obey and it would be for naught. I think one historian said that John Lennon had memorized large portions of the Bible. Didn't turn out too well. Yes. Okay, in practice in our daily lives, taking the word of God in and applying it to our lives in everyday situations. So that's why we're to have the renewing of our minds. So as we study God's word and we apply God's word, uh, <clears throat> you mean by practicing, you meant applying it? 
Yes, practicing applying. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I should have. Yeah, so we should be applying and practicing God's word daily. And apart from knowing God's word, we, you know, we could react in the situation. And if we're not familiar with God's word and relying upon God's Holy Spirit, we're not going to respond correctly. That's why Paul instructed the Galatians to walk by the Spirit. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. <clears throat> Even though Paul had already sacrificed everything in order to serve the Lord, he recognized that he still had the capacity to sin. Remember what he penned in Romans 7. Oh, what wretched man that I am. The things that I want to do, I find myself not doing. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. So he was wrestling with the sin nature. He knew that. It was sin within him. The, the unredeemed flesh. So that's a battle. And we need, by God's grace, to allow God to work in our lives to overcome sin in us. He was, uh, <clears throat> even though... He lived an exemplary life, Paul did. He still recognized his need for pursuing perfection. Remember again in chapter 8 of Romans where he said he had to rely upon the Spirit when he knew not how to pray. So Paul revealed levels of areas in his life where he continued to grow. The psalmist in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5, David wrote this, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So throughout Scripture, Old Testament or New, we see the sin nature, everyone is born into sin. And so that's clear in Romans 3, Romans 2, 3. Actually, going back to chapter 1. So the first three chapters illuminate the deadness of our souls. And in Ephesians chapter 2, I think verse 1, we are born in our trespasses and sin. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. Paul continues putting forth the positive against the negative. He often does this in his epistles. He had the awareness, and yet he knew he had not attained spiritual perfection. Obtained in the original comes from the word lumbano, which means to receive, to acquire, or to attain the prize he pursued. He had not yet become perfect, and the word perfect comes from the Greek word teleo, which translates acquire or attain. The goal that Paul pursued, he had not yet attained. Perfection. 
The words already used twice in verse 12, not that I have already attained, indicates that he's still imperfect. And he wrote the epistle in A.D. 61. Despite all the blessings that, he, <clears throat> that were his in Christ, the apostle understood that he had not yet been perfected. His knowledge of Christ was not yet complete, as he pointed out in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Paul understood that Christ's righteousness had been imputed to him, he wasn't righteous. Anything he had was the imputed righteousness, and that was everything. Second Corinthians chapter 7, he says this in verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Of course, we know that Jesus Christ was the only man who was fully God and fully man, and he lived a perfect and sinless life. No one else has walked this earth that has been sinless. Oh, say Adam and Eve prior to the fall. They were created sinless. Though the apostle knew that his body was the temple of the Holy Spirit, as clearly taught in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verse 19, he says this, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So as the apostle taught that here in Philippians and in verse 21 in Philippians, he says, he longed for the day when Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So he looked forward to the time where he would be glorified. But while he was here, he was completely yielded to God. He didn't allow any sin to go unconfessed and repented of. And that is the example he lays before us. <clears throat> In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets his desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So as you were saying, you were asking that question, this is where it becomes practical in our lives. Can we do this on our own? No, it's an empowering of the Holy Spirit. Remember in 2 Corinthians, I think, 12, where Paul said he was talking about the, what his experience was, and Christ revealed to him this, and I'll quote it, <clears throat> about the power of God's grace. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I employed the Lord three times that, I might, that it might leave me. And he said this, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul, having penned that, understood fully the work of God's grace. And that is how we rely on our daily walk. That is the grace of God, moment by moment. Our victory over sin is only accomplished when a believer relies upon God, the Holy Spirit. So we must always be conscious of living our lives in the power of God's Spirit in order to overcome the desires of the flesh. It's inevitable that Christians will suffer trials and tribulations in this life. He points that out in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. And I want to make a quote from MacArthur, but I'm going to stop here. MacArthur talks about churches throughout the world in which people in congregations are crippled by their past. Now, this is when we're going to get into the part in Philippians where Paul says, forgetting the past, I press forward to the mark of the high calling of Jesus Christ. Many people are crippled by their past. If that past of sin has been confessed and repented of, we are restored in, with God. So many people withhold from participating or serving because they feel their past sin. There is limitations in the offices within the body of Christ as far as elders and deacons. But when we recognize that all of us have sinned, there are certain requirements for certain elements of service in the Christian church. So we have to realize that all of us are dependent upon God's Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul was urging these Philippian believers to walk strongly in the grace of God and to be a testimony for him. We can gain a lot from this small book of Philippians. It's rich. It's replete with jewels. And yet, if we don't apply those by God's grace to our lives, it's just more knowledge. So I'll close with this. I just pray as I teach through this small epistle that we can embrace the truths as well as the truths that are proclaimed during the service as Jim preaches through Hebrews these things are transforming it's God's word it's alive and active that is what we rely upon let's close in prayer heavenly father we thank you for this day for the privilege of gathering together collectively I pray that you would be glorified as we continue to worship you in the word and in prayer as well as songs and hymns. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would be glorified in all that we do. We just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.